We're going to continue to go through the book of Acts as we are looking, as you can see up here, the five spirit reception events. And I know that sounds technical, but what I'm simply saying is that there are five occasions in the book of Acts in which God pours out his spirit upon his people, either in a group or individually. And there is only one occasion in which we read it happens to an individual by himself. And we will actually be looking at that one today. And that would be in Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul. So if you would turn in your Bibles to that particular passage in Acts chapter 9. Many, many years ago, but I'm sure not that many, when my daughter Kate was eight years of age, I believe she was eight, uh, she, Juliana, and I had been going through a, I think it was we were going through the book of Acts in our morning devotional time. And as we were doing this, we happened to be speaking about this, and they were, Kate in particular was asking, well, Daddy, can you pray over us that this would have, this that we're reading about what happened to me, that would happen to us. And so I said, sure, I would love to do that. And so I just had them kneel before me, and I placed my hands on them, and I prayed that they would receive this empowerment of the Spirit. And I just had them pray as well as I prayed over them. And I said, is, is God giving you any words? We call this the, a prayer language or speaking in tongues. And no, no, okay, all right, well, here's what I'd like you to do. Because the apostles tarried for 10 days before receiving the Spirit, um, we're going to see here that the apostle Paul tarried for three days, not necessarily that he prayed specifically for the Spirit. We're going to get into that much more, of course. But how about if you just... I remember sending Kate off into my study, a downstairs bedroom. We were in uh, Winter Springs at that time. Uh, excuse me, Virginia Beach, Virginia at that time. And uh, Juliana, I think she stayed in the, the living room where we were, and they just began to pray. And I, I said, girls, as, as the Lord, as you're praying and as you're worshiping, as the Lord been speaking to you or giving you words and no, no, okay, well, I'm just going to encourage you, take some time and just worship the Lord. And Kate, within a few minutes, as I remember, she poked her head out and she said, Daddy, uh, I just feel like some words are coming to me, but I don't understand them. And I said, sweetie, just pray those words to the Lord. And so she began to pray those words to the Lord. It wasn't like this full-blown vocabulary or anything, somewhat short. And then she began, as she tells me she began to worship dance before the Lord. And she said, Dad, you know, if anything, when I, the, the Spirit's anointing uh, on me at that moment was when I was worship dancing. And to this day, when my daughter dances before the Lord, it, I just well up in tears. And I don't, maybe it's because she's my daughter, I don't know, but I would like to believe that it's because she is anointed for this, and some of you are as well in certain things, and the Spirit of God poured out gifts upon her, and Juliana's turn came later, but I want to bait the hook, so to speak, if you will. I want to chum the waters. I want you to realize that if this is not something, to chum the waters, that may not have been a great illustration, Sorry. <laughs> 
But I want you to bite a hold of this. I want you to feed on these truths that we're going to be going through. I wanted to be able to finish up these five spirit reception events, and the Lord put a break on that. And we are just doing chapter 9 today. Wrapping up chapter 8, you can see there's one more box there we haven't looked at. Uh, Finish up chapter 8. And I want us to see some things that I believe are pretty profound here. And actually, as, as I do a review on eight, extending some challenges for us to seriously consider. Because here's the deal, church. God gave us his spirit for a reason. The Apostle Paul, his tendency is to see, to use an illustration, the wave, this powerful wave coming ashore. And when he speaks of the spirit, he sees the wave and the crashing of the wave on the seashore as one. He just speaks about them as if they are one, but they are not. And Luke specifically and actually exclusively focuses on the wave crashing on the seashore. Now, I can tell you this. That that wave is powerful, whether it's 50 yards out or when it crashes on the shore. But here's what I do know. When it crashes on the shore, you better not be under it. Because when it crashes on the shore or close to the shore there, it will push you down. And if you're in places like Hawaii in which those waves are absolutely monstrous, you've seen the pipelines, it will keep you underwater. And if you're not careful you, and, and trained, you can drown because it is so powerful and it can keep you underwater for so long. But I'm just saying that Paul views this giving of the Spirit, and when he talks about it, he just simply talks about it differently than Luke does. Luke is very focused. We see this in one, chapter 1, verse 8, in the theme. If you look on your piece of paper, they're the very front, the very first verse. Any, before anything else, I share chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, and it is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my what, church? Witnesses, say that a little bit louder, witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the power that we are to receive. And this power is poured out in five uh, places in the book of Acts. And it's very clear that this is an act of God as he's pouring out his spirit upon the people. Here's why this is so important. When Paul concludes the book of Romans, he says, so that all nations will believe and obey. Now, I've touched on that verse before when we were talking about the expansion of the kingdom of God, about this rock that's hewn out of the mountain and breaks and crashes the uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, image in, in Daniel 2, and it becomes, this rock becomes a huge mountain that fills the earth. And it's going to fill the earth, church, as the gospel is powerfully proclaimed to the ends of the earth, and people, as a result, believe and obey. Nations, so that all nations will believe and obey. This is my dream. This is my heart. I hope it beats in your heart as well. It did in Paul's, and I can tell you what it beat in Luke's. And so his entire book has this major theme. There are other themes, but this major theme of the empowerment of the Spirit in his church, and yet today, church, today, I would venture to say since the Reformation, but truly it was before, but people have been constantly missing this. For a reason, we'll get into it. Hopefully today, we'll see. We are, we are missing this empowering work of the Spirit, and we are simply settling for our hearts being changed. 
washed by the blood of the lamb, which, please don't mishear me, what an amazing act of God's grace. But is this all? And Luke tells us, no, it is not. No, it is not. And so I, I want us to look at this. And we looked at chapter 8, and we saw what happened with the Samaritans. And as Philip went and proclaimed the gospel, <coughs> excuse me, they believed they were water baptized. The B here is before. We're going to use an A for after, just as far as when they were water baptized. And I'm doing this, uh, all of this, so we can kind of have this schemata, but so that we can recognize, I think we're going to come to the conclusion, there is no set formula or set pattern in how God pours out his spirit. We're going to see this, and it's going to be very clear. But we are going to glean some absolutely crucial truths from this that today in Jesus' church, many are failing to walk out. I don't want that to be with us. And my prayer is that this truth, and for the last 100 plus years, it has been gaining momentum, if you will, so that in the beginning of the 1900s, I, I think there were probably just several thousand, tens of thousands that had been baptized in the Spirit. And within 50, 60, 70 years later, there were a, a quarter of a billion that had been it, it received what we're going to be talking about today and over the next several weeks, this baptism in the Spirit. The problem comes when we equate the baptism with the Spirit or baptism in the Spirit with conversion. Uh, that can happen, as we're going to see in chapter 10 with Cornelius. That can happen. But we're going to see that it generally does not. Why doesn't it? So these are some things, these are patterns that we need to draw from. Anyway, we see with the Samaritans that they're baptized after they believe, but they have not received the Spirit. And actually, we are told that the only thing that Philip did was baptize them, which means he did not lay hands on them to receive the Spirit. Why wouldn't he have done that? And I'm going to suggest to you that the reason is because he thought that was the apostle's place, not his. He, we actually find in the very next story, he has the privilege of leading the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. Water baptizes him. And when they come up out of the water, they're walking up out of this lake, pond, whatever it is. He still has not laid hands on him, Luke tells us, to be baptized in the spirit. And he immediately is caught away. Totally freaky weird. I'm just wondering, the Ethiopian eunuch probably was scratching his head on that one saying, what just happened? Did Scotty just beam him up? What happened here? But he's immediately transferred to Azotus, it said. So he, he doesn't baptize, he doesn't lay hands on and pray for and, uh, and such for the Ethiopian eunuch as well. And, and it is easy for someone who is reading this book to sit back and say, well, maybe that that is what needs to happen. Maybe it is only apostles that can do this. I, I know today that there are people that believe that only elders or pastors or overseers or bishops can lay hands on people. That became the tradition in the Catholic Church. As a matter of fact, it became a tradition, though unbiblical, by the mid-200s AD. The very next chapter, the very next story is the conversion of Saul 
And who is it that lays hands on him? Was it an apostle? Was it John or Peter or maybe Thomas or someone else? Absolutely not. It was simply a disciple named Ananias. That's it. No qualifications here, no title, no position of authority that we're aware of. Just a disciple, devout follower of Jesus, who was a Jew, and he's the one God chose to lay hands on Paul to receive the Spirit. So as we go through this then, we found that later the apostles prayed for them, Peter and John, prayed for these Samaritans, laid hands on them, and they did receive the Spirit. And there was a delay anywhere from several days up to a week, maybe more, we don't know, but it was, it was quite a while. It wasn't just a day or two. Now we come to this last box, and we have to ask the question, what happened? As soon as the hands were laid on them, what happened? That we're told in chapter 8, verse 18, this is, follow me in your Bibles, it says, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Can I ask you this question, what did Simon see? Simon saw something. He didn't, the apostles didn't just lay hands on them and that it was some subjective experience that happens in probably most, if not all, of our conversions. We might feel something, but I would not come to the altar, see people giving their hearts to Christ, and say, um, I saw that all of them received the Spirit. And they would ask me, so how, how do you see that, Mike? I would have no answer for you. But something happened here, and it was more than just some subjective experience inside that no one can see. I'm going to call this an objective experience. It is outward. Simon saw something. Now, more than likely, it was tongues. It could have been prophetic. It could have been any number of spiritual phenomena or evidence of the Spirit. We just don't know. But there was something that he saw. And I'm going to just check this off. And so that brings me to this question. <laughs> if we are to equate the baptism in the Spirit strictly with conversion, and that it always happens at conversion, we will immediately run into numerous problems as we're laying out this, this chart. Excuse me, I like charts. I don't know if you're a chart person. I like to see something so that it, because otherwise it can kind of get jumbled up in my mind. But as we look at this and as we go on to these next three in, in ensuing weeks, we're going to see some patterns. We're going to see things happening. And specifically, we're going to see that people generally lay hands on people for them to receive the Spirit. Can I ask you, when you were converted, maybe in some other church, and honestly, maybe in Powerline, because I'll confess to you that this has not been my normal practice. And I'll be honest, it should be. It should be. The Spirit of God has just been laying on my heart because I grew up in a traditional church. And, and Jesus is saying, Mike, I, I, need you pull, I need to pull you all the way out of that. Because this is something that's really significant. But can I ask you, when people, when you gave your heart to Christ, did anybody lay your, their hands on you to receive the Spirit? I would venture to say that probably none of you or maybe just one or two. Why is this? Because if the Spirit of God does bapt or that Jesus does baptize you in the Spirit at conversion, 
this practice of laying on of hands, or excuse me, praying and laying on of hands was very common. We're going to see this. Why isn't that happening? Why, isn't, why is it that there is no delay when we see delay in the book of Acts? Why is it that in every single one of these, except maybe this one we're going to look at today, is there a manifestation of the Spirit? How many of you, when you first gave your heart to Christ, spoke in tongues? Anybody, seriously, raise their hands. When you first gave your heart to Christ, you spoke in tongues. I don't see any hands. Maybe you were afraid to raise your hand, so anyway, but I would, no, I, I didn't. It didn't happen to me till two years later. It should not have been two years. Let me just add that. It should not have been that long, but there was delay. And I would venture to say that those of you in which you were baptized in the Spirit, and some of you as a result had a manifestation like tongues, or maybe you prophesied, or some other gift of the Spirit, you would say that that did not happen at your conversion. But if baptism in the Spirit happens at conversion, why not? Now, I'm going to answer that question in a moment, but to do that, let me just, let me just look at these. The first thing, and this is key, because my contention is that baptism of the Spirit generally, though not always, will happen after or subsequent to conversion. If we, if we equate them, then we're going to have to do something with this that I'm going to mention in a moment, we're going to have to do something with this, and basically it's tossed them out because they become irrelevant to us. Let's look at this. Prayer. Now, I did tell you to turn to Acts chapter 9. My apologies. I actually want you to first turn to Luke 11. Prayer. Should we pray for the Holy Spirit? I mean, for you to receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, should you pray for it? When I was converted, I wasn't instructed to pray for the Holy Spirit. And because I grew up in a church that said, hey, when you're converted, you receive the Spirit immediately. I'm not going to disagree with that. But my contention is that there is something else that the Spirit longs to do. It's that crashing of the wave on the seashore that we are invited to pray for. But I would contend that those who see the baptism with the Spirit and conversion simultaneously, they never ask you to pray for the Spirit, and yet that is exactly what Luke tells us to do, or Jesus tells us to do in this passage. Are you there? Luke chapter 11, he is, Jesus is actually teaching about prayer because his disciples come to him and say, he, they asked him, please teach us to pray. So he first gives them the Lord's Prayer. Secondly, he gives them a parable in which a man has a friend visiting him. It is midnight. Oh, my goodness. What a bold friend to come and say, hey, can I uh, spend the night at your place? Well, he wants to give him something to eat. He doesn't have anything. So at midnight, he goes to his another one of his friends, knocks on his door, and the guy says, dude, what are you? It is midnight. Please. You want me to get up and answer the door? And I'm being a little facetious here, but there is this tension. Why are you doing this? And the guy is insistent. Because you're my friend, and I need to give this other friend who's visiting me something to eat, can you pre please give me some bread? We're fresh out, and I don't have an opportunity to dash to Walmart. And so consequently, the guy, because the friend is bold and insistent, he gets up out of his bed, 
even though he snuggled down for the night, and he gives him some bread. This is a picture of prayer, that we are to be bold and persistent. Jesus calls this faith. Luke 18, in the, in the, in the, uh, the parable of the widow, she prays, she goes, excuse me, prays, she goes to the judge over and over and over until she gets from the judge what she's asking for. This is a picture of prayer that we go to the father whose heart is completely unlike this unjust judge and will certainly grant us what we request, but maybe not initially. Will we continue to press in and pray? And Jesus says, when I return, will there be faith on the earth? Meaning, will my church be praying insistently, boldly like this? Church, I pray that we will be. So when we pray, we are bold, we are persistent. As a matter of fact, he then goes on to say that whoever asks will receive, whoever seeks will find, and whoever knocks, the door will be opened. So we ask, we then seek, and now we are knocking. Do you sense the progressive aggressiveness? Asking? seeking, and then finally knocking. Come on, just like this friend knocked at the door. I need this bread. And so he insisted. And so the friend got up out of bed, gave him what he needed. That is what the father will do. Now we come to this portion of, of Luke 11, still teaching on prayer. In, verse, in Luke 11, verse 11, he says this, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, Will he give him a snake instead? If he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, the answer, of course, is what, church? Come on, the answer, of course, is no. no. Thank you, you're awake. All right, no, of course he won't. If you then give, excuse me, if you then, though you are evil, ouch, right? If you then, who are, if you though... If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, listen, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I want you to look at this text very carefully. Who is being asked? The Father. Who is doing the asking? A son, a child of the Father. When we take this out of the analogy, the illustration that he bases praying for the Holy Spirit, when we pull it out of that, we realize that this, and, and we apply it, we realize this is not an unbeliever who is asking for the Spirit. It is a child of God who is asking for the Spirit. But you know what? I mean, if you ever ask for the Spirit... You know, a little weird, at least in our day, you would do it at your conversion because guess what? You're supposed to receive the Spirit at conversion, right? So if you want the Spirit, if that's when it's going to happen. Why would you wait until after you're converted to get the Spirit? You already have it. That's what, I, that's what I was taught when I grew up. But who's doing the asking? A child, a son, an heir. He's the one asking. How is he asking? Jesus already set us up here. Bold, persistent, progressively, not just asking, but seeking, and not just seeking, but knocking. 
for 10 days, the apostles and the other 120 in the room gathered together, Acts chapter 1, excuse me, I think it's verse 14. If you find the verse, you can correct me, but I believe it's 114. They are gathered in the upper room, all 120. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there with Jesus' brother, and they are praying. In Luke 24, 53, they continually worshiped God at the temple. So we know Luke tells us that they were worshiping and that they were praying. What do you think they had been praying for? Jesus said, look at chapter, Acts chapter 1. They, had, they were praying, excuse me, Jesus had just left them with that verse. That's the last thing out of his mouth before, that we know of, that before he ascends to heaven. And you will receive power when my spirit comes upon you. What do you think they're going to be praying? So wait, just, wait in Jerusalem just a few days, and then you'll receive my gift. I'm going to baptize you in the spirit, Jesus says. But wait a few days. What do you think they're going to be praying about? I'm imagining that they are going to be praying for the power so that when they minister the gospel, there is going to be not just a handful, but hundreds, if not thousands, that will respond to it and begin to follow Jesus. Guess what happens on the day of Pentecost? Just 10 days later, Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times, boldly preaches the gospel. And how many, how many received Christ on that day? Three thousand souls were told Whew. excuse me but that my friends does not come from some skilled speaker who finally woke up one day and said you know maybe i should preach the gospel that comes from the lips of an of a spirit empowered disciple of jesus and on that day tongues of fire fell upon them, the sound of a tornado rushing through that room, catching everybody's attention. They heard the noise and wondering, oh my goodness, what is going on here? And as they gather, they hear what? They're speaking in my tongue. How do these people know my language? 15 different languages represented there. Consequently, as the spirit falls on them, Peter stands to preach. 3,000 say yes. Was Jesus right when he said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when my spirit's poured out upon you? Oh, my friends, absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, that is one of the major themes that we see now in this entire book. So we are encouraged to, to pray for receiving this gift, this good gift of the Holy Spirit from the Father. The Father sends the Spirit. Jesus baptizes us in the Spirit. The entire Trinity involved in this process. The Father is the giver. Jesus is the baptizer. The Spirit is the medium in which we are immersed. And I hope you can understand the word baptize means to immerse. We are immersed in this spirit, receiving power. We are also instructed to lay hands on it. And I, sh I pointed this out last week, Hebrews chapter 6. We discover six elementary, rudimentary teachings of Christ. Not just some relic of Judaism, 
the high priest laid his hands on the scapegoat, and there was a transfer of the sins of the people onto that scapegoat who was then led out into the wilderness. That's not what he has in view here. Because as you look at these three, one of which, of course, I mentioned is laying on of hands, they all have to do with salvation. You can write them, you can look at those passages. It's repentance, faith, baptism, water baptism, laying on of hands, the resurrection and judgment. All of them are fundamental and revolve around this one concept of salvation. So he's not talking about laying on of hands for healing. He's not talking about laying on of hands to bless the children, though Jesus did that and we commend it. We're not talking about laying on of hands to set people apart for a ministry, for, for being a part of the, an elder or a deacon. No, we're talking about the laying on of hands for what? The reception of the Spirit. So why is it that we don't do that anymore? Or at least many churches, we do that, but many churches do not. And it's because we see it as a relic of the first century church, not to be applied today. And yet, what does the author of Hebrews say? Guys, hey, wake up. This is a fundamental teaching. And yet, as I say, since the Reformation on, it has been relegated to a relic. We just don't do that anymore. Why? Very simply, you receive the Spirit at conversion. Why lay hands on people? Do you see the implications of this? We, if, if it's true that we receive the Spirit at, at conversion, there is no delay whatsoever. So why is there a delay in the book of Acts? There is no need for phenomena because we don't need that evidence of the Spirit. We just simply have the truth of God's Word. Do you believe it or not? If you believe it, you don't need the Spirit's evidence. This is the rationale. And yet, as we go through the book of Acts, four of the five Spirit reception events, they, there's a manifestation of the Spirit. What is going on here? Now, I am just going to, you know what? No, nope. I am going to skip this section. I've been leading up to the question, how do they respond? And I'm going to do that. Uh, Mike actually, by the way, is preaching next week because I'm going to be out of town but when I get back, I want to pick up with that. And because all of these, all of these speak of a delay, but one. And so this, this question of how do these people who don't see what I'm, I'm preaching on, how do they respond to this? And there is such a good answer. I'm going to wait. I'm going to, I'm going to choose right now to, to wait on that. Thought maybe that I would run out of time, and I have, and I want us to get to Acts 8 and spend the next 20 minutes just pouring into this and drawing some rich application from it. So turn with me then to Acts 9. I'm not going to read Paul's entire testimony. You can read his testimony actually here in chapter 9, in chapter 22, and in chapter 26. So Luke shares Paul's testimony three times in this book. I'm kind of thinking maybe it's significant. So <clears throat> I am going to pick up here in reading with, great, I'm going to pick up on it in, on verse 9. You're familiar with the story. Paul, then called Saul, and he is called Saul because that is his Hebrew name. Several chapters later, as he's ministering to the Gentiles, it's not that his name changes to Paul. It's just that when he became a Roman citizen, which he was actually born into being a Roman citizen, he was given a Roman name, therefore Greek, and that is Paul. 
when he ministers to the Gentiles, he now goes by that name rather than his Hebrew name, Saul. So Saul's name did not get changed to Paul. It's always been Paul. It's always been Saul. It's just that Luke chooses to focus on his Roman given name because he's ministering to the Gentiles. You see this. So here is this guy, and I'm going to call him Paul. So I'm not going back and forth between Saul and Paul, and because you might think I'm talking about King Saul. All right, let's avoid the confusion. So here's Paul, and he is, he is vehemently against the church. He's persecuting the church, and he's going to Damascus, which is a I don't know. Couple of, about a hundred, couple hundred miles up north. And he, so off he goes. And his purpose is to drag people who claim to be Christians but are Jews into prison. Take, he's got papers from the high priest, and he is going to try and stamp out as furiously as he can this thing called the way or Christianity, followers, disciples of Jesus. On his way there, you know what happens. Jesus appears to him. Those who are with him only see the light and they hear a noise. Jesus, excuse me, Paul is blinded by this light, but hears very clearly Jesus speaking to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And as that unfolds, we are going to need to ask the question, when was Paul converted? So here he is. And he falls on his feet. He's not on a horse, by the way. He's not riding on his little horse. And then he falls to the ground. There's no horse in view here in any of the three testimonies. He's probably walking. He could be riding, but he's probably not because when he gets up, they lead him by the hand. And I don't think they're doing this, holding him as he's riding on his horse into Damascus. He's probably walking, but he falls on his face when this bright light shines. And when he gets up, he's led into Damascus. And we pick up the story in verse 9. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So he's fasting. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord, specifically Jesus, called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Paul, for he is praying. So not only is he blind for three days and fasting, we know that he's praying. In a vision, he has, so he's receiving a vision. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man. And all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord, that is Jesus, said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How would you like that prophetic word given to you one day? Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I'm going to keep reading. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, church, say that with me, 
at once, and I want you to underline that, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? That is the name of Jesus. And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, I want us to look at this chart here and ask a few questions. Was there prayer before he was baptized or filled with the Spirit? We would have to say yes, but I'm going to put this in parentheses because he may very well not have been praying for the Holy Spirit, okay? So I'm going to put that in parentheses, but he was most certainly praying. Were hands laid on him? Absolutely, yes. Ananias came, a disciple. We read later in 22 that he was a devout observer of the, the law, but he was a disciple of Jesus, and he laid hands on him. Was he water baptized before or after he received the Spirit? He was baptized after he received the Spirit. Was there any kind of delay? We're going to come back to that in just a moment. And was there any evidence of a manifestation of the Spirit? We're going to come back to that one as well. I want to ask this question, and, and honestly, in my opinion, it's not a big deal, so I'm only going to take a minute or so, but was there a delay? To ask that, answer that question, we have to answer, when was he converted? Now, you've heard of a Damascus Road, Paul's Damascus Road conversion, and personally, I believe that that is when he was converted. However, there are arguments for the other side, and it cuts both ways, but if we were to look at it, in all honesty, I have to ask, can a man, even though he was so adamantly opposed to Jesus, have this vision and it not immediately impact him? What then is he praying for? Because it says that when he's filled with the Spirit, at once he begins to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the Messiah. Where did he get this? May I add that he got some of it at least because he heard Stephen preaching and he, had, he, he encouraged people to kill Stephen. He probably heard others preaching as he had many put into jail. He, he heard them preaching about Jesus and then he had them arrested, thrown into jail, many of them losing their lives. Did Paul hear the gospel? I'm going to tell you, yes, he absolutely did because he had to wait for them to preach about Jesus to accuse them of following Jesus. When he is praying then, what would he be praying about? Mostly when he's fasting. Can you imagine if he is converted, well, if he has not converted, what would he be praying about? He would probably be wrestling with a lot of things. And in his mind, is Jesus the Messiah? Uh, I would suggest he's not wondering if he is. He is wondering how he had missed it and how when he was reading his Old Testament, he had so erred in understanding it. Now, he's blind, so he's not going to pick up his, his Torah or his Old Testament in Hebrew or 
through the Septuagint and start reading it, but he probably has learned certain passages, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and no doubt these passages are impacting him, and, and, and I would even suggest it probably moved him to tears because he persecuted the followers of Jesus, and now he has become a follower of Jesus. Those three days were preparation for this anointing that falls upon him, and he immediately begins to proclaim the gospel. That gospel that he had heard, but that the Spirit of God was illuminating more and more in those three days as he was a disciple, a learner, sitting at the feet of Jesus for those three days, fasting. And the reason why he's fasting is because on the road to Damascus, there's more to the story. We read about it in chapter 26. Jesus says, go to Damascus, and I'm going to tell you what to do. Ananias, three days later, does tell him. But in chapter 26, Paul goes on that in the vision, Jesus kept speaking. And he says, I'm going to call you to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. You're going to call them out of darkness. You're going to preach, and the power of Satan is going to be broken, and people are going to be forgiven of their sins and set free. Would that not shake you? You hated these people at one time. You hated this name, Jesus, at one time, and now you're going to proclaim it, and you're going to impact the very, peop the very type of person that you were? And that shook him, no doubt. But here's what happens in chapter 26, verse 19. At the very end, he says to King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision. Now, I say this because those who believe that he became a Christian later say that what Jesus is speaking right there, that, he is, that Paul is testifying to, is a compressed event. It includes what Jesus said to him on the road, and it includes what Ananias spoke to him three days later, and then he responded. I tell you what, when, that, when you receive something like that from the Lord, it is going to totally change your life. How on earth could you, for three days, if, how on earth could you not make a choice to follow Jesus? And so people place much of what Jesus speaks to him on the road to, to Damascus as if it were coming from the lips of Ananias, which it could be, but just follow me here for one second. If Paul had said, I was not disobedient to the words of Jesus, he said, I was not disobedient to the words of If he said that, then I would agree, okay, this is probably a compressed story, but he doesn't say that. He attributes everything to this vision. That is not a compressed story. So here's, where, here's my point. Paul hears Jesus speaking to him on the road to Damascus. He hears the call of God on his life. He goes and he prays. He fasts. He is weighing the scriptures. He even is receiving visions from the Lord for crying out loud. He has come to know Jesus in a very powerful way on the road to Damascus. So in this last question, is there a delay? I'm going to say yes, there was for three days. Then when Ananias places his hands on him, 
He then is filled with the Spirit, but Luke does not tell us of any manifestations of the Spirit. Now, it might just simply be that he leaves it out. I personally think he does not because Luke is so attentive, as you're going to see here, to any manifestations of the Spirit afterwards. So if he leaves it out, I'm going to suppose it's because it didn't happen. But here's what we do know. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He may not have spoken in tongues immediately upon receiving the Spirit or being baptized in the Spirit, but we do know this. At some time later, he did. I'm in the process of, of reading a book by a gentleman by the name of Sam Storms entitled The Language of Heaven. The very first chapter, he shares his testimony with when he received this gift of tongues. <clears throat> he grew up in a very Southern Baptist, dispensational, um, anti-charismatic denomination, church, family. And when he gets involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, someone in that group begins to talk to him about this baptism with the Spirit, and he's, a, he's somewhat resistant. He does allow them to pray for him. He makes a choice, and if I'm not mistaken, for about two months, on his way back to his home or dorm, or wherever he is heading, he stops at this elementary school and sits underneath a tree, and every day coming home from college, he prays, and he, he, he cannot let this go. God had been stirring something so profoundly, he is asking that God grant him this gift, this phenomenon, this evidence of the Spirit called speaking in tongues. And every day he goes there for at least half an hour and he prays and he seeks God. Now, I've heard some people say, don't seek the gift, seek the giver. And I'm going to agree. Seek the giver. But 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. So church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you. If you do not have the gift of tongues, if you do not have what we might call a prayer language, tongues in devotional or, or private time, then I'm going to encourage you, don't be afraid. Ask him for this. Earnestly seek it. The Bible does say to seek the gifts, but it also says seek the giver. And so this is what Sam Storms did. And he says suddenly, he was just praying, and he, he was opposed to this, and yet he's praying, and he says there was such conflict in his soul, and all of a sudden, in his prayer time, he just began to speak in this language, and it completely freaked him out. And he just began, and he said, it, it was as if I was looking down on myself, who is this? as he is praying in this language he had never heard of. And I'm going to suggest to you, church, God wants to freely give all good gifts. Another time, maybe we'll talk about tongues and prophecy and, and so on in looking at 1 Corinthians 14. So much rich truth there that we can walk in that many, even charismatics, many of them don't walk in. But I'm going to encourage you, let's seek the gift as well as the giver.
And so was there any evidence? We're going to have to put a question mark there. And my tendency is to lean towards that there was none. But it is possible. It just doesn't tell us. Here's what we do know, though. And this is why I did not stop at verse 19. Because the purpose of the baptism in the Spirit is what, church? Look on your first page, Acts 1.8. It is to receive power to be my witnesses. And this is exactly what happens. He is baptized in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit or he receives the Spirit or the Spirit was poured out upon him or the Spirit fell upon him. And what is the result of it? He becomes this incredibly bold witness and he begins at once to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God. As a Jew, that would freak anybody out. What do you mean the Son of God? There's only one God. And yet he is convinced that Jesus is God and that he is he is the son, the very son, heir of God himself, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And, and, and that he is now teaching this in the synagogues and convincing them, baffling them that Jesus is the Christ. Here's something I want us to focus on because I've got only a few more minutes here. Actually, one. Grant me a few. It says here, look at verse 22, yet Saul. Now, my version says grew more and more powerful. The only problem that I have with that translation is because it can kind of sound as if he's gaining influence, that he's kind of getting better at preaching, that he is studying the scriptures and he's baffling them more and more because he's studying the scriptures and gaining more knowledge, and he's getting better at this thing. But this, there are two Greek words here, the word more and the other word rooted, it's a verb form of dunamis, which means miraculous power, and it, it's... It's translated empowered. He was empowered more. And I'm only bringing this up because where does the power come from? If you're empowered, it's not because you're becoming more and more skilled at what you do. It's because God himself is infusing you with more and more power. And this is happening because he is being obedient to the vision that he had received, and he is preaching the gospel. And I'm going to just tell you this, that when Jesus speaks through you, church, be obedient and keep doing it. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't fall into the pattern of fear and say, well, maybe no. I don't want to impose on people. Just keep doing it. Regardless of whether you're afraid or not, just keep doing it, and you're going to see the power of God coming upon you more and more. Now, I want to read something to you, <laughs> and it is the testimony of a lady by the name of Jackie Pollinger. I believe I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Jackie had a burden for the people in Hong Kong, and when she was young, and she is quite old now, but when she was young, she came to Christ. She actually had people lay hands on her, which freaked her out, to receive the empowerment of the Spirit. And while she is praying, at some point later, she begins to pray in her language. And she confesses it was not emotional at all. I figured if it were to happen, it would be like electricity passing through my body. Now, for me, it was. For her, it was not. Every experience that we have is going to be different. But for her, it was very unemotional. So here's what she did. 
She was confused about it. She set it aside, which, by the way, is what I did for two months. She set it aside for quite some time, and then another couple came to her. By now, she is beginning to proclaim the gospel. She had moved to and proclaimed the gospel as a young lady in Hong Kong. Apparently, it is a, a city with walls. There's a lot of drug addicts. They're everywhere. It is filled with people who are in incredible, absolute bondage in their sin. And she went there to minister to them. And as she's ministering to them, it's like no one is getting saved. And then this couple said, Jackie, when they prayed over you and you received your prayer language, how are you doing? Are you, are you, are you praying in your prayer language? And she said, well, no. It, actually, I, I didn't feel that it was very helpful to me. And they just, they just simply encouraged her, pray in the Spirit. So she decided, and this is her testimony, okay? She decided to do that 15 minutes every day. Let me pick up the story. Jackie promised the couple that she would devote 15 minutes every day to praying in tongues, now, can I just say this, that even though we speak in tongues as the Spirit gives us evidence, uh, as the Spirit gives us utterance, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul makes it clear that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, and the spirit of the tongue speaker is subject to the tongue speaker. They can stop prophesying or begin prophesying, but the word is from the Spirit regardless, just as in tongues. So if this is weird to you, wow, you can just suddenly start praying in tongues. The answer to that question is yes, you can, because this, your spirit is subject to you, and the spirit is speaking through your spirit. I hope that's not confusing to you. So she began to pray 15 minutes. About <clears throat> After about six weeks, Jackie noticed something remarkably different in her ministry. People with whom she shared the gospel actually began to believe in Jesus, but that, wasn't, but that isn't where the story ends. It was only the beginning. Let me continue. The single greatest obstacle to deliverance from drugs was the indescribable and unbearable pain of withdrawal. The agony of going cold turkey had driven the vast majority of addicts back to their habit. But Jackie made a startling discovery. Now, this is her personal testimony. She herself has no explanation for why God chose to do it this way, but she, she is happy he did. It was her custom to pray for her new converts to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to receive a prayer language. They always did. But then she observed that when the pain of withdrawal would begin, it would just as quickly end if the individual would begin praying in tongues. It took a while to convince a few of the, the converts, but the horrors of withdrawal made them desperate. As Jackie and others would pray for them in tongues, they too would cry out to God in their new language. Miraculously and virtually without exception, each one came off drugs without the wrenching pain associated with this experience. So not only has she been baptized in the Spirit, and people are now being converted under her ministry, but as she's praying over them in tongues, and they then receive the baptism of the Spirit and pray in tongues, there is no withdrawal symptoms at all. And he says this happened without exception. Let me continue. Most of those addicts had been on heroin or opium for years and had quite literally run out of space on their bodies in which to inject themselves with the drug. Their lives were controlled by their addiction, and few would hesitate to steal or even kill to support their habit. Many had sold friends and family members into prostitution to keep the flow of drugs coming. Yet, when they converted to faith in Jesus and prayed in tongues, 
the power of that addiction was defeated, broken. I have no explanation for this. I don't have a biblical text that I can cite in support of how God used tongues in Jackie's ministry. I just don't. All I can do is state the facts as I know them and let you draw your own conclusion. But the simple truth is this, that every single person numbering in the hundreds who prayed to receive Christ under Jackie's ministry also received the gift of tongues, and every single heroin addict who prayed in tongues, every single heroin addict who prayed in tongues at the onset of withdrawal pains came through the experience without the slightest discomfort. Whether God will make use of tongues in a similar way through the ministry of others is something neither I nor Jackie nor anyone else can predict. Our responsibility is to obey God's word and trust him for the results. I want to conclude right now. I'm over my time. Church, the reason why I read this is because when we are filled with the Spirit, we are given the tools, the phenomenon of the Spirit, to minister boldly in Jesus' name, proclaim His truth persistently. Men, we talked about the zeal of the Lord. That is a burning in the spirit. That burning is not just in our spirit, but it is by the spirit. So when the question is asked, is it our spirit that's burning or is it the spirit of God that's burning? The answer to that question is yes. It is both. It is that spirit that I want to call you to. It is that spirit that I believe Jesus wants to baptize you in. It is that spirit that wants to empower you that like Paul, even though he was such a fervent, anointed speaker, you too, you too can speak the word of God boldly. I know for myself, I had been a believer for two years, and I was desperate for this. D.L. Moody says, I was so desperate for this, and I would not give anything to, to go back to that time. I, I, I would never want that. I would never want to continue to preach as I was until I was baptized in the Spirit, and I am so glad that God did that. When I gave my heart to Christ two years later, baptized in the Spirit, received my prayer language, within two months, I went back to school, and God gave me, on average, and, and I just began counting them because I was shocked, on average, three opportunities every day, five days a week, for the next two years to evangelize. Something had changed in my heart. And I can't say that I won hundreds to Christ. I am aware, though, that it did impact and change some people. I didn't hear about that until much later. Cole has a similar story in which God just used him to proclaim the gospel constantly at his school. And people later came up to him and said, Cole, your words changed my life. I don't know about you. But when I stand before the Lord, I want to know that I did all I could and made myself available to all that God could do in and through my life. This is the way, the empowerment of the Spirit. So, Father, we come before you today. We are a people in such desperate need for you. Such desperate need. Lord, I will open up again and throw my fears into the wind. 
Spirit of God.